The U.S. Constitution is a constant partner in everything we do here at Civics 101. Can the government do that? Who is in charge here? What did the Supreme Court say? How are those votes counted? We go beyond the Constitution, sure, but nine times out of ten, we start there. It's the foundation. It's of paramount importance. It's the revered beacon. But I recently spoke to someone who dramatically shifted how I see this remarkable document. And as I'm getting ready to share that conversation with you, I figure it's a good time to remind us all what the U.S. Constitution, the thing that we reference so often it's basically a person in the room, actually is, says, and does. So today we are revisiting how this 200-plus-year-old rulebook came to be. And after that... Speaking of looking at Hollywood documents in a new light, Hannah, I'm going to be sharing an episode that features my most overused metaphor in my many years of working with Civics 101. But we got to start with the Constitution. And and by the way, everyone, the opening scene with George Washington having breakfast used to be like twice as long. We made Hannah cut it. Yeah, the fact that no one gets to hear what the weather was like on November 5th, 1786 at Mount Vernon... That's everyone's last. I you want to tell them now? You want to tell everyone what the weather was like? Yeah, I do. Here's the thing. It was 44 degrees when George woke up and checked the mercury, and he thought the weather was going to get bad, and, like, Charles Pinckney is there, and he's going to leave after breakfast. And then everything ends up being clear, fine, and agreeable. And by noon, it was 54 degrees out, which is, like, pretty pleasant for November. It was like a metaphor for how everything worked out in the end for America. I actually really like that. I hadn't thought of it that way. I just wanted to share some archival diary research with the listener. Well, patient listener, uh, without further ado, the U.S. Constitution. The time, May 14th, 1787. The place, Philadelphia. What show is this? This is Civics 101, and I am Hannah McCarthy. I'm Nick Capodice. And today, we are taking you to the city of brotherly love, to a stuffy chamber in the old Pennsylvania State House. The very same room where, a decade earlier, a group of men came together to declare themselves independent of their motherland. This time around, they came to reel some of that independence in. This is the story of how our Constitution came to be. Wait, 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 wait. Just we're all on the same page here. When we're talking about the U.S. Constitution, what exactly are we talking about? What's in it? Okay. First things first. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the thing that was written in 1787. The document designed to correct a nation that was falling off the rails. The Constitution has changed quite a bit since then and changed pretty quickly after it was written, just so everyone knows. So first, there's a preamble. That's the part that most people know. A lot of us learn it through this Schoolhouse Rock song. We the people, in order to form a more perfect union, It's some pretty grand language. Secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Yeah, it starts out lofty. But the Constitution itself is a bit more dry than that. Okay, the Constitution we think of as basically a structure of government. It's got seven articles and four parchment pages. This is Linda Monk, constitutional scholar and author of The Words We Live By, Your Annotated Guide to the Constitution. 
Article 1, which is Congress. Most people get that wrong. They think it's the president, but no, it's Congress. Congress gets two out of four pages, and words in the Constitution count. So very basically, the Constitution is a collection of seven articles that explain what the government is, what's in it, and how does it work. Article 1, the legislative branch, seems to get the most attention. So the more words there are, a lot of times the more powers there are. The framers intended Congress to be the dominant branch of government, and that's where most of the powers lie. Next longest is Article 2, the executive branch. The president was the piece of our current government that the framers had the hardest time agreeing on. They had lots of different proposals. Finally, we came down to a president. Uh, The method of selection in terms of the electoral college is still one that we debate and are concerned about. Then comes Article 3, the judicial branch. The third branch is the judiciary, which has the fewest words, but we've come to think of it today as having broader powers. Article 4 covers states and citizenship. Full faith and credit that states must recognize, for instance, like the marriages in other states. Full faith and credit basically means that any state has to respect the acts, records, and judicial proceedings of another state. It also deals with interstate felons, new states joining the union, and federal government protecting states. Then we've got five, the this thing can be amended clause. What I think is the secret sauce, that's the amendment process. We set in work a constitution that's not too easy to change because that would make it more like everyday law versus a constitution that's then too hard to change. And then you have revolution instead of amendment. And then there's six. The supremacy clause, it says that the constitution itself is the supreme law of the land, including over other state constitutions. And last, but certainly not least, lucky number seven. Where they sign and say what the processes are going to be from that. When Linda says the process, she's talking ratification. Nine states are going to have to vote yes on this document to make it stick. So there you go. Seven articles, all wrapped up, nice, neat little package with pretty pink ribbons on it. Except it wasn't neat, Nick. No pink ribbons. It was difficult and contentious and touch and go and very, very hot in there. So do you want to know how it happened? Yes, I want to know how it happened. Well, Linda gives a lot of the credit to James Madison. Linda really, really loves James Madison. Oh, who can't love James Madison? (laughs) (laughs) He's my hunka-hunka burning constitutionalism. According to Linda, Madison is different from the other politicians. Compared to the other framers, he's petite, and he's also kind of nervous. But he's strategic and thoughtful, an effective underdog. To have that combination of a great philosopher but also a good practical politician in one person, And for someone to say that government is the greatest of all reflections on human nature, he just has a wisdom Mm -hmm. that really speaks to me. And um, I'll stand by it. He's my boyfriend and he's the person (laughs) who's my favorite founder. And even if you don't carry a flame for him, Madison was undeniably instrumental in the convention of 1787. You have to point to James Madison. I have tended to quarrel with calling him the father of the 
Constitution, but I do think he's the father of the convention in many respects. This is David O. Stewart, author of The Summer of 1787. He's going to be our main guide to the Constitutional Convention. David says that Madison was successful in part because of his connections, one connection in particular. To be honest, nothing in that decade of the 1780s in America happened of significance politically unless Washington was in it. He was the guy. And Madison very intelligently insisted that Washington's name be listed as one of Virginia's delegates right from the start. That gave an incredibly strong blessing. Celebrity power, like having Obama speak at your charity event or something? Only bigger. Washington was a celebrity of almost ridiculous proportions. You know, his stature was immense. I mean, he was at a stage where he couldn't enter a city without having the church bells ring and fireworks be scheduled and an illumination of everybody's house happen that night. I mean, he just was, you know, the star. We, we did, we've never experienced, you know, stardom at the level that he did. Okay, so Madison's rallying people to come to this convention, and he knows that Washington being there is going to get a lot of people in the room. Washington was very uncertain whether he really wanted to go, but he did ultimately decide to. Uh, There was a lot at stake, and if it didn't go well, he would be blamed for it, and he knew that. And so uh, it was not an easy decision. He had tried to retire from public life after the revolution, and I think he meant to. This is understandable. This man put his time in, and he wants to sit back and enjoy the rest of his life in peace. But the country he had fought so hard for was struggling to stay afloat. So he allows himself to be drawn back in, with the understanding that he would be presiding officer, actually referred to as the president, of the convention. That means he's not going to orate and he's not going to debate. He's going to oversee until vote. Okay, so Madison's got Washington, he's got his delegates, and everyone meets up in Philadelphia to figure something out? It wasn't that easy. Almost everybody was late. The convention was set to start on the 14th of May, and they didn't reach a quorum, that's seven states, until the 25th. Rhode Island just never showed. New Hampshire didn't have the money to send their delegates until mid-July. There's actually this moment in Madison's notes where someone proposes a resolution to send for the delegates from New Hampshire, and the motion is defeated. Virginians were the first uh, out-of-town delegation who arrived. The Pennsylvania delegation was mostly men from Philadelphia, so they lived there. And those two groups of men got to know each other pretty well. They did talk and strategize together. And then the Virginians developed a process where in the mornings, and this happened for over a week, they would convene at a boarding house where Madison was staying, and they put together a blueprint. So remember, the plan is to get a bunch of delegates together and make changes to the Articles of Confederation so that they, well, work so that the country doesn't fall apart. But Madison has a different idea. The delegation spends a few days voting on rules for the convention, including total secrecy so that the framers can debate freely and change their minds if necessary. And then Madison makes his move. Before any debate or suggestion takes place, he has fellow Virginian Edmund Randolph submit a list of 15 resolutions. They call it the Virginia Plan. And what the Virginia Plan did basically was 
throw out the articles and start on a blank piece of paper. And that was uh, audacious and it was also very smart uh, because people wouldn't bring to the debate all the old arguments they'd been having for six years under the articles and they could start essentially with first principles of how a government should be designed and should operate. Well, that's a bold move. The Articles of Confederation are no dreamboat. But imagine showing up thinking you're going to make some small tweaks and adjustments, and then this faction of states tells you, nope, surprise, we're going to talk about a whole brand new form of government. The reaction is mixed, uh, to, to be charitable. Uh, there were delegations like Pennsylvania and I think the South Carolinians who knew exactly what the Virginians were doing and supported it. Uh, there were a number of delegations, what classically has come down to being described as the small state delegations, who were surprised and in no small measure appalled. Uh, the Delaware delegation uh, ended up threatening to leave. Uh, they had instructions from their state legislature that did not include starting over with a, a new charter of government. There are delegates who are understandably upset with this proposition, and they certainly could bail. They could walk right out the door and spare themselves months of debate in an airless room. But why don't they bail? Because if, if enough delegates leave, they'll lose the quorum, it'll be over, but they can just try again next year. Well, two delegates from New York do eventually walk out. That's Robert Yates and John Lansing. But I think back to that letter that George Washington wrote to Madison. Things are so bad in the country right now. The government needs to change or this grand experiment is going to fail. And how are you going to walk away from the chance to contribute to the structure of a new nation? If I wanted to choose a three-word phrase that sums up the motives of the authors of the Constitution, it would be a phrase that was used at the convention. And that phrase is describing the problem that the Constitution was designed to solve as excess of democracy. This is Woody Holton, historian and author of Unruly Americans. Excess of democracy. The feeling among many of those 50, most of those 55 guys who wrote the Constitution was, hey, it was great that we got rid of the king, but like a pendulum, we swung too far to the opposite extreme. And now we have an excess of democracy and we got to pull it back the other way. Excess of democracy might sound absurd to the average American, but what Woody means here is that under the Articles of Confederation, the states were masters of their own destiny. They had a say in whether they would be taxed. They got to make up their own rules. But it wasn't working. Woody says that there are so many factors that lead to the debates on the floor of the Philadelphia State House, but money makes the world go round. And after the Revolutionary War, the country had empty pockets and crushing debt, with no surefire system in place to collect taxes. The people who wrote the Constitution did not write it to make the country more free. They wrote it to get the country out of a recession because debts weren't being paid, both to the bondholders who had bought up the war bonds or to private creditors. So many delegates saw a lot of danger in granting a federal government more power. And so much of that is about who you can trust, right? Like, these powers can be a good thing if they stop anarchy and improve the economy, but there is some serious danger in power, too. You know, there's, there's no way to make everybody happy here. But we do need that new government. 
nobody wants to go crawling back to Great Britain. So from the absolute get-go, the convention is going to have a theme. Powdered wigs and waskets? Tricorn hats? Compromise. Ah, compromise. We'll get into those compromises right after the break. But first, we want to say that if you are someone who loves pouring through archival sources as much as we do, you'll probably like our newsletter, Extra Credit. It comes out every two weeks. It's full of trivia and ancient documents, and it is free. Subscribe at our website, civics101podcast.org. This is Civics 101. We're back, and we're talking about the Constitution, specifically the Virginia Plan. By the way, what exactly is the Virginia plan? What does Madison want this new government to look like? Okay, right. Madison proposes a strong national government that could make and enforce laws and collect taxes. The legislation would be bicameral, meaning two-house, and representation would be proportional to a state's population. And when the Virginia plan comes out, those devotees of states' rights were the most shocked and appalled Uh, A couple of delegates from New York actually left after six weeks because they were so unhappy with the centralization of power uh, under the draft that everyone was working on. So when that argument was engaged, it ended up morphing into an issue over representation. And that was a lucky thing, I think, for the people who wanted a stronger national government because there you're sort once you're arguing about representation you're arguing over how to do it as opposed to should we keep this system where the states have essentially almost all the power okay so madison proposes this plan and in order to talk about this plan the delegates have to talk about representation right and that's such a hot button issue that suddenly everyone's debating how they'll be represented in the new Congress. And they've mostly moved on from the fact that this is a completely new system of government. And that wasn't the plan for this convention in the first place. Right. So once things get started, they have to start making compromises. Little New Jersey says, OK, I see your two house proportional representation and I raise you a unicameral. That's one house legislature and equal representation. Each state gets one vote, as outlined in the Articles of Confederation. That was the bitterest fight of the uh, summer and really almost blew up the convention in in early July. Uh, The the small state delegates were about to leave because they'd been losing. And they came up with this compromise that we still live with, where the Senate has equal state representation. Each state gets two senators. And the House of Representatives is proportional based on population. This was actually called the Great Compromise, or the Connecticut Compromise, because Oliver Ellsworth from Connecticut proposed it. No, not everyone is going to be happy, but this is acceptable. And anyway, they still got a lot of work to do. And delegates are willing to let this idea go to committee to hammer out the details. But when they reconvene, it's going to be time to compromise again. Because when you talk representation, you talk population. And nearly 20% of the population at that time was enslaved. Well, the Three-Fifths Compromise was essentially one of the pro-slavery clauses of the Constitution. This is Alvin Tillery. He's the director of the Center for the Study of Diversity and Democracy at Northwestern University. And what the Southerners wanted entering 
the Constitutional Convention of 1787 was they wanted all of their slaves to be counted in the apportionment uh, because places like South Carolina uh, and Georgia had uh, very, very large slave populations. Uh, they, they, they were not as well developed as the mid-Atlantic slave states or the northeastern states. And so uh, for them, if you were just counting white people, uh, they were going to have uh, very few seats. Uh, and so entering the convention, they demanded uh, you know, a, a full count. Every slave would count as one person. In some states, enslaved people made up a full third of the population. To count them as members of the population rather than as pieces of property would be to give the South real power in terms of representation. So Northerners made the argument that slaves were livestock, just like horses or oxen. You don't count horses or oxen as part of the population, do you? So why would you count your slaves? The South said, no, these are people. They're human beings. They ought to be counted. So what if they can't vote? Women can't vote, but they're counted. You know, I've often been taught that the North was the moral player throughout the history of the United States. But here they are denying the humanity of the enslaved people for the sake of their argument. Yeah, and... Remember, at the time of this convention, slavery was still legal in the North, in Maryland, Delaware, New Jersey, and New York. And the North had been built on slave labor. They all understood that it was immoral. <laughs> and so the, the old view that the founding generation, the slaveholders among them from Washington and Jefferson and Madison, that they didn't know that slavery was wrong is, is belied by their own writings and, and statements about slavery. Let, let's not forget that in the first version of the Declaration, Thomas Jefferson uh, sort of essentially blamed the, the king's evil advisors uh, in parliament for slavery, foisting slavery upon them, right? Right? Uh, Jefferson wrote very compellingly in notes on the state of Virginia about slavery being a moral evil. And so uh, so those old arguments uh, just don't hold any water. We know from the writings of the framers uh, that uh, they knew that this system was wrong, uh, but they protected it because of a combination of their economic interests and white supremacy. What conversations were they actually having over the issue of representation? Was it purely motivated by money and racism? I think the racial and economic bias is a given in this room. But there were some people, like Governor Morris from Pennsylvania and Rufus King from Massachusetts, who argued against the entire principle of slavery from a moral point of view. Morris even suggested that the newly reformed nation buy and free all enslaved people, that idea was quickly shot down. Even in those free states, you still had men who had grown up with slaves. They were self-interested elites. So the entire original 13, the wealth that made them all viable, is bound up in slavery in some way or another. Um, and this is the argument the Southerners use. They would say, well, it's fine for New York and Massachusetts to say, that they don't need slavery anymore, but they've had slavery for 100 years, 125 years, and extracted great wealth from it. Well, as Charles Coatsworth Pinckney would say from South Carolina, South Carolina's just starting to do that. So it's not fair, <laughs> you know, to say, to say we developed on a slavery basis and now you guys can't. Uh, and I think that that argument um, won the day. 
the compromise part of this is in the name, of course, the Three-Fifths Compromise. Southern delegates wanted their enslaved population to count as full members of the population. Northern delegates did not want them to count at all. So they split the difference based on a number James Madison proposed back when they were figuring out taxes under the Articles of Confederation. The enslaved population would only be counted at three-fifths of its total. Native Americans, by the way, will also appear in Article 1, but they aren't counted for tax or representative purposes. Okay, but for those delegates who were opposed to slavery, and even those states where it was illegal, why did they give in? Why was it necessary to give the slave states some version of what they wanted? Well, the South was threatening to walk out. Uh, the South Carolinians uh, were also uh, you know, incredibly clear about exiting the compact uh, if they did not uh, sort of get to count uh, some of their slave population in the apportionment. And so it was union and slavery or no union. And so they didn't really have a choice uh, if they wanted a federal government. Uh, and that was what all of these men were, nationalists, federalists. Uh, they had done something that no one believed they could do. Uh, and uh, they wanted to see the experiment succeed. So there's an emotional element to this, right? They did something that nobody had ever successfully done before, they waged war against their motherland and won and started a brand new kind of nation, these delegates wanted to leave Philadelphia as an intact union. But Alvin says it's also a practical choice. The overarching concern is the national security concern that England is coming back. <laughs> George will be back. And as we all know, he, they did come back in the War of 1812. Uh, and so the argument for union is both an argument for financial efficiency and expediency. So you could actually uh, get credit in the international credit markets, loan money, build up the industry in the country so that you could compete with Britain and France, uh, but also provide for a common defense. The Three-Fifths Compromise was adopted on July 12th, and most states voted yes. Only Delaware and New Jersey delegates were unanimously against it. I think it's easy for us to revere the United States Constitution because provisions like the Three-Fifths Compromise were taken out eventually. But it's worth thinking that this is something that's been baked into it from the very beginning. And you can't help but wonder how it shaped us. Well, I mean, it, it absolutely inflated the... Uh, the representative uh, power of the slave states uh, in the Congress, in the House of Representatives, uh, and in the Electoral College. And what that means is that, you know, five of the first seven presidents are slave owners from, you know, Virginia, <laughs> right? Uh, and, um, you know, which was the most populous and powerful of the slave states. Uh, and this legacy extends into the, the 19th century, the late federal period. Uh, it, it allows uh, Southerners to establish a Democratic Party uh, and to put in place things like the gag rule, which means you can't talk about slavery or introduce petitions from northern states against slavery in Congress. And so that takes slavery off the table as a live political issue uh, for 20 years, essentially. Even after the Three-Fifths Compromise and a clause requiring fugitive slaves to be returned to their masters were removed from the Constitution following the Civil War, 
Southern states found ways to disenfranchise their African-American population, while at the same time gaining even greater population numbers now that all people were fully counted. Here's David O. Stewart again. You know, they made grimy compromises. There's no other word for it. The Electoral College is a mess. Um, The slavery provisions are unattractive. Uh, When Madison had to write about them in Federalist Papers, he clearly found it almost impossible. Uh, But you had to get a deal. Otherwise, the country might well fall apart. And that's the stakes they were playing for. And if you had to swallow something you hated, most of them did. And so they keep going. Madison's plan called for an executive power. Should it be one man or a committee? Well, most states have one, so one it is. But can this executive veto laws? Sure, but the veto has to be overridden by two-thirds of both houses. Well, how are we going to elect this one powerful man? Direct election by the people? No, absolutely not. What about some kind of indirect system? Oh, man, we've been here before. (laughs) The Electoral College is so weird. But it is a compromise. And then came another, this one about the slave trade itself. Ten states had banned the import of enslaved people. Georgia and the Carolinas threatened to walk out if they dared to do the same thing to them. So... They compromise. Yeah. Congress would eventually have the power to ban the slave trade entirely. Initially, they decided that could happen in 1800. They talked about it for a while and then pushed it back to 1808. And there are so many disappointing, even shocking steps. So many ugly compromises that came out of that room. But then again, this plan sticks around for over 230 years. And in so many ways, it has benefited this country. There's a lot to be dissatisfied and distraught over. But we live in a democratic system that can actually work. Linda Monk actually pointed out the elements of the original Constitution that I think gave it the ability to last. So, you know, the laws that are passed day to day by Congress or Parliament, a majority can approve them and a majority can disapprove them. But for the American Constitution, it requires a two-thirds majority of the Congress or state conventions to propose an amendment and then a three-fourths majority of the states to approve it. And so that's a high bar. We don't want our Constitution changing at the whim of the people, uh, but we do want it to be subject to the people. That would be Article 5, the Amendment Clause. Okay, now obviously the words we the people did not apply to all people in the U.S. when they were written. But there is a little bit of we the people in that article, isn't there? All this talk about representation, it goes both ways. Yes, it's about the Congress people, but it's also about the people people, the people who elect them. And I feel the same goes with the amendment process. Yeah, absolutely. The we the people slowly came true. Because even though it didn't apply to everyone at first, and, you know, in some ways still doesn't, it is there, right? We can rise to that. I kind of feel like the amendment clause itself is a built-in acknowledgement that words and ideas of 1787 may not apply to 1887 or 1987. 
those first three words, the most important words in the Constitution, really, we the people. And it's it's really expressing this idea of popular sovereignty, popular meaning the people, sovereignty meaning power. And the preamble makes it clear that the power that is the people's is then used to ordain the Constitution. Uh, those aren't the people who have the power. It's the people have the power, and they give it to the Constitution. And that's why the president, the uh, Congress, the Supreme Court, any federal and state officer takes a, an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States. That's the supreme source of our power. There was one last compromise to come out of that four-month process. This one was suggested by the convention's oldest delegate, Dr. Benjamin Franklin. At this point in his life, Ben Franklin has gone from being a slave-owning white supremacist to the president of Philadelphia's abolitionist society. This is a man who has changed his mind radically over time. Franklin says, you know, I don't like everything about this constitution. But that doesn't mean that I will always feel that way. The older I grow, he says, the more apt I am to doubt my own judgment and to pay more respect to the judgment of others. And Nick, I know that you have always harbored a desire to play Ben Franklin in 1776, the musical. And while I cannot give you that, I can do you this one small kindness. Would you read Franklin's final statement to the convention? All right, here goes. On the whole, sir, I cannot help expressing a wish that every member of the convention, who may still have objections to it, would with me, on this occasion, doubt a little of his own infallibility, and to make manifest our unanimity, put his name to this instrument. Before the break in our episode on the Bill of Rights, Nick and I want you to know that we have taken three years of episodes and condensed them into a snappy, cartoon-filled book. It's called A User's Guide to Democracy. It is illustrated by New Yorker cartoonist Tom Toro, who is fabulous and funny, and we put in as much as humanly possible to explain how America works at every step. Get it wherever you get your books. Hi, this is Chuck Taft at University School of Milwaukee. I'm unable to get to the phone right now, so if you would please leave your name, number, brief message, and most importantly, your favorite person in American history. I will get back to you as soon as I can. Thank you. Who is this Chuck Taft? He's a high school history teacher, and I called him up because he plays this game with his class called Bill of Rights Survivor. How on earth do you play that? So Bill of Rights Survivor is obviously based on the fantastic reality TV show Survivor, of which I'm a big fan. Uh, The idea is that we're going to use amendments 2 through 10, and then students are going to try to figure out which amendment should be the sole survivor of Bill of Rights Island. Does he give the kids torches? I do, actually. (laughs) You know, the little LED type of candles. And then I have a Bill of Rights mug. I also hide immunity idols in the room. It's like two little slips of paper. The students are assigned amendments and they present speeches as to why theirs is the most important. Everybody votes and the losing amendment is called up to the Bill of Rights mug. When I say, you know, that the, the tribe has spoken. The tribe has spoken. 
Time for you to go, Seventh Amendment. This is so excellent. I imagine the students will walk away with this profound love and respect for the Bill of Rights. They do. But there's another teacher that I adore, Woody Holton from University of South Carolina. I want you to call me Woody if you don't mind, but my legal name is Abner. He's in the Bible and he killed his father. So who gives that name to their son? (laughs) I play kind of an obnoxious game with my students where I ask them, okay, tell me specific things. Don't talk in generalities about liberty and freedom. Get specific. What specific clauses of the Constitution you like? And they'll say freedom of speech, or they'll say everybody can vote, or they'll say um, uh, gun rights, um, or uh, no unlawful search and seizure. And then I get to say, you know, the things you just named as being great about the Constitution, none of them is in the Constitution. None of them is in the document that the framers adopted on September 17, 1787. None of them are are reasons that they were there, or they would have put those things in it. Today on Civics 101 and our founding document series, we're finally getting to you. And we're talking about the Bill of Rights. I'm Nick Capodice. And I'm Hannah McCarthy. And before we get into how it was created or how it affects our lives, let's be clear about what it is. The Bill of Rights is the first ten amendments to the U.S. Constitution, written by James Madison, ratified December 15th, 1791. And you know them all by heart, right? Yeah, of course. If you don't, it's real easy to fix that. I looked at a bunch of mnemonic devices for how to memorize the first 10 amendments. And my favorite by far involves waving your hands around, which is not good for radio. But Hannah and I made a video of it. Go to our website, civics101podcast.org, and check it out. Let's begin in that sweltering room in Philadelphia. David O. Stewart, author of The Summer of 1787 told me about the great debates over the Bill of Rights at the Constitutional Convention. The debate about the Bill of Rights actually never happened. It wasn't discussed through most of the summer. Uh, It was not something that they thought was terribly important. Uh, A few of the states had constitutional provisions that declared rights, Virginia did, Uh, and it was widely thought to be sort of eyewash. You know, it was something you did that made everybody feel better, but it didn't really make much difference. Um, And they didn't worry that the national government would create risks to people's liberties. However, the idea of a Bill of Rights was brought up at the convention, but truly at the 11th hour. In the last week of the convention, there were two delegates, George Mason of Virginia and Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts, who were known to be unhappy with the Constitution, with lots of features of it, the powers of the Senate, the powers over uh, trade. And suddenly they stand up and working with each other, obviously they had cooked this up ahead of time. Uh, They move for the inclusion of a Bill of Rights. One of them actually says, we could put this together in an afternoon, which is a little uh, ambitious. Uh, And most of the other delegates saw this for what it was, which was, was a stall. They had been in this hot, sealed up chamber with boards over the windows for months. And they did not let this diversion of a Bill of Rights scuttle the whole thing. And this feeling that it wasn't really needed is echoed by James Madison and Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton's Federalist 84 says Bills of Rights, quote, are not only unnecessary in the proposed Constitution, but they would be even dangerous. You said Madison wrote the Bill of Rights, but 
he didn't want a Bill of Rights? Not in the slightest. He did not think it was essential to our new nation, and he even referred to the act of writing it as a, quote, nauseous project. The fundamental point that James Madison made is that the Constitution itself was really the structural guarantee of our rights. This is David Bob. He's the president of the Bill of Rights Institute and the author of Humility, an Unlikely Biography of America's Greatest Virtue. Alexander Hamilton wrote, the Constitution itself is a Bill of Rights. In other words, all of those kind of things that can be considered not quite as uh, exciting, the, the, the separation of powers, federalism, these sort of guarantees, the structural part of the Constitution, that's the mainstay of our liberty. Of course, Madison was very aware that the people's rights need to be protected, but that was mainly the job for the states. Remember, Hannah, all these states had their own constitutions, many of which had their own bills of rights. Right. So they're arguing that all of the states have them. So why does the federal government need one, too? The other reason that Madison was not for the Bill of Rights was a kind of practical one. And that is, if you write those rights down and separate them out and say, boy, this is, this is really important. This is, this is the statement. This is the place you go to find all of your rights here. What if one of them is not on that? What if, what if a right that you do possess is not listed there? Does that mean that it's not a right? Those are some pretty strong arguments. They are, but in the end, they don't work. The Constitution had been sent to the states, where they had ratification conventions to decide if they're going to go along with it. Delaware ratifies first with a unanimous vote in their Congress on December 7th. Then Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Georgia ratify right after. But then we have a nail-biting lull during the year of 1788. These ratification conventions were big deals. And during that process, a repeated theme is, why is there no Bill of Rights? That's Linda Monk, the Constitution lady and author of The Bill of Rights, A User's Guide. The people were calling for one, and this terrified the pro-ratification Federalists. Madison in particular saw that as a plot to derail the Constitution because people were saying, hey, you guys got to go back to Philadelphia in the summer of 1788 and write in some uh, some civil liberties and maybe we'll ratify your Constitution. And um, the people who wanted the Constitution were afraid that would lead to more controversy and the Constitution would never be ratified. And so they fought tooth and nail against the Bill of Rights, not because they were opposed to civil liberties, but because they were afraid that would gum up the works and prevent the original seven articles of the Constitution from being adopted. But starting in Massachusetts in February 1788, and then in several other states, including uh, my original home state of Virginia and uh, the state of New Hampshire, all said, okay, we're going to go ahead and ratify the Constitution, but only with the understanding that if you don't add, that that you'll add a Bill of Rights. And if you don't add a Bill of Rights, we can always call a second convention. Wait, so they say, give us a Bill of Rights or we'll call another convention to write a whole new constitution? Yeah, and most of them did not want to do that. It was so hard to get the first one written. The first Congress came in, has a Federalist majority. The majority of them don't want a Bill of Rights. But James Madison convinced his fellow Federalists, hey, you know what? We better give them a Bill of Rights 
before they give us one. These states, some of them, will say, okay, we're going to trust you to put in a Bill of Rights, and we'll go ahead and ratify it now. Uh, A state like North Carolina said, no, we don't trust you. We're not going to ratify this until you've already added the Bill of Rights. And so when Madison's running for um, Congress in his state of Virginia, he takes a stand that if he is elected, he will move to um, propose a Bill of Rights in the new Congress. And that's what he does in 1789. Nauseous project or not, Madison is true to his campaign promise. Because more than anything, he just wants that Constitution to be ratified. And if the people are crying for a Bill of Rights, not only will he make one, but he'll ask every state what they think should be in it. And he sits down and he makes his first list. The, the list that he came up with was more than 200. 200? 200! 200 total, yep. Because there were a lot of states that had pulled together lists that were long. And they, they had some that were more detailed than others. And Madison, again, with that kind of mind that wanted to lend some order to these kind of things, there's no way that you can deal with 200, right? You couldn't hardly deal with 20. And then there's the question of where to put these rights. Madison initially wants them to not be a separate thing. He wants to write them into the Constitution. He wants to just change this document that these men sweated over for four months. Yeah, and Congress says, heck no, we have a Constitution already. But Roger Sherman of Connecticut had an idea. And in fact, it's an enemy of Madison's uh, who proposes that maybe we should put all the amendments at the end. During the process that they propose, they eventually are referred to as amendments, not a Bill of Rights. Madison says there are amendments like a Bill of Rights because at the end of the process, they all came together after they were ratified. It was 12 amendments submitted. Ten got ratified at that time. Uh, they became known uh, colloquially as the Bill of Rights. Wasn't that the official term for it? Well, there's some debate about that. Uh, Pauline Meyer, uh, the late and very esteemed uh, scholar, raised some questions about that. Well, it wasn't actually called a Bill of Rights. I, I, I take a little exception of that. Sometimes you don't have to give a name. It's give a. Uh, a document its formal name for it still to be that. I mean, it still operates as what we think of and call a Bill of Rights. So we start with 200, and when the smoke clears, we end up with 10. Nice round number. The first are great civil freedoms, speech, religion, press, petition, and assembly. The second and third are about militia and conditions under war. And the fourth through the seventh are about the rights of the criminally accused. So a full half of the first 10 amendments are about the rights of the accused. That's right. And you think, why did the framers put that much emphasis on the rights of the criminally accused? And when you think about it, you know why. It's because they were criminally accused. They were very aware of when you have the power of the whole government going against an individual who's accused of a crime. The ninth answers Madison's fears of missing rights, that just because a right isn't listed here, that doesn't mean you don't have it. And then the tenth, that any power not given to the federal government is given back to the people. You know, Hannah, what I think is a subtle thing about Civics 101 that's very important to me is that we are dependable, right? Yeah. We're reliable. We give you information you can trust, and we try to give it to you in the best way possible. (laughs) 
And wouldn't it be oh so nice if there were go-to tools for every obscure, time-consuming subject in our lives? Well, there is, for one particularly tricky undertaking, hiring new employees. That is the whole reason Indeed exists. Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements, or else you don't pay. And they have all sorts of tools that you can use, like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Uh, Instant Match is this thing where as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of candidates and can invite them to apply right away. You save so much time and energy. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash civics. Uh, this offer is valid through March 31st. Again, go to Indeed.com slash civics to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. That's Indeed.com slash civics. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. For the states. And on December 15th, 1791... Virginia becomes the 10th state to ratify the Bill of Rights, adding it to our recently ratified Constitution. And there it is, right? That's it? What is it, like 15 minutes? Well, I think it's time we bring up the tub. What tub? A tub to the whale. This is Woody Holton again, and he's quoting a whaling term used by an anti-federalist to describe the Bill of Rights. Sometimes, you know, you're going after one of these big toothed sperm whales, and the whale turns on the ship, and it, and it can sink the ship just like in Moby Dick. They had these big wash tubs, big wooden wash tubs, and they would throw one overboard and in hopes that the whale would attack the, the tub instead. Um, so it's, it's sort of a, a diversionary tactic. And, and it's amazing how many of the people who uh, had opposed the Constitution saw the Bill of Rights as written as a tub to the whale. They wanted structural reforms. Some, the, the largest number of them thought that the Constitution made the federal government too strong and Structural reforms to the Constitution were the last thing that James Madison wanted. He liked weakening the states. He was a strong national government guy. And so he didn't want to shift power back to the states. And he was also an anti-democratic guy. And he didn't want to shift power back to the people either. So he didn't want to give the critics of the Constitution the big stuff that they wanted. So instead, he gave them some things that he saw as innocuous. Nobody was challenging gun rights at the time. Nobody thought there was an imminent threat to freedom of speech or religion. They threw in all these things that to them seemed almost trivial, and that's the tub to the whale. And let's get people to adopt that Bill of Rights so we don't have to adopt a bigger Bill of Rights that returns power to the states and to the people. And certainly when I ask my students what they what do they like about the Constitution, they name the things in the wash tub rather than the ship of state. Okay, but regardless of whether the framers thought those rights were trivial, they were ratified. They have become a part of our Constitution and they help define us. I agree. They do help define us. They are, much like the Declaration of Independence, big ideas that you can hang your hat on, you can sink your teeth into. 
but there's an ongoing discussion about how they actually affect our lives. You know, for, first of all, there's a, there's this debate, right? There's the Elkins and McKittrick view uh, in history that um, the Bill of Rights is a net gain uh, for citizens in the United States because they've created a bundle of federal rights where the, the federal government can't trample on you. This is Alvin Tillery. He's the director for the Center of the Study of Diversity and Democracy at Northwestern. And so that's a net gain for citizenship, even though your states can still trample on you. Your states can have a state religion, like in Maryland. Your states can restrict your property, you know. And so, but, but to have the federal rights is a net positive in 1787, right? Um, then there's the Charles Beard view, which is, you know, all of these guys are grifters. You know, the urbanites, like you know, are grifters and, and the planters are grifters. And what they've done is make sure that Shays' Rebellion never happens again. And so the Bill of Rights is a nice sort of thing to hang on your wall and make you feel like you're an American citizen, but it doesn't really affect your daily uh, life because, you know, your state can still do really horrible things to abridge your freedom. And this is like the crux of the whole thing, Hannah. The Bill of Rights initially did not apply to the states. And what this meant for you as an American was that while the federal Congress couldn't pass a law abridging your freedom of speech or freedom of religion, your state could. And the Supreme Court even upholds this in a case of 1833 called Barron v. Baltimore. It's not until 1925 that the Supreme Court rules that via the 14th Amendment, via the Equal Protection Clause, the Bill of Rights does apply to the states. But it's not all at once. It's called selective incorporation. Piecemeal, one at a time, these amendments are incorporated into state laws. With any of these rights, the way they were developed, say freedom of speech, uh, the Supreme Court didn't even get involved with freedom of speech cases, really, until the labor movement brought a lot of those cases to the courts. And that's when finally the, the court would hold that, yes, these bills of rights actually apply to state laws, too. Um, you look at the civil rights movement, same thing. When um, uh, when the Supreme Court rules that desegregation must come to an end, did that happen in 1954? No. There was massive resistance from the states. It took movements of citizens, great movements of citizens, to finally have some of those protections apply. This is kind of crazy to me. Yeah. So are you saying that the Bill of Rights which was written to kind of answer all of these concerns about the Constitution, you know, denying states and individuals their rights, didn't actually apply to the states. It only applied to the federal government until 1925. Yeah. Do you know the no excessive fines or bail from the Eighth Amendment? Yeah. We are recording these words on February 20th, 2019, and that was incorporated this morning. So was the Bill of Rights, as it was written in the 1700s, kind of meaningless? I was scared to even say that thought out loud. But it is a fact that the Bill of Rights just didn't have much judicial impact for 150 years. The historian Gordon Wood said that after ratification, most Americans promptly forgot about the first 10 amendments to the Constitution. In 20th century America, legal immigrants were deported for their politics? People in police custody gave forced confessions. Racial segregation was legal. 
So I asked Alvin about where he stood on this. Is the Bill of Rights a net gain, or is it a bunch of grifters throwing out a wash tub? No, I think it is great. And I, I think it was, you know, I, I think I'm closer to Elkins and McKinney. I, I think it was great when it when it when it happened, or when it was what is when it was written uh, into the documents. I, I think the ideals were always good and valuable, but, but it took the culture time to catch up. And it took thousands and thousands of people putting their bodies and souls on the line to convince the power structure, which is very conservative always, that they should make good on these, the, the, the text of these charter documents. Right? But the framers knew that they were being hypocritical <laughs> when they were writing these documents. They, they absolutely knew it. Uh, and that's why the framers didn't allow Jefferson to say, you know, you forced us to have slavery. <laughs> right? They knew that that wasn't true. Right. Uh, but they made a heron a master race democracy for themselves. Uh, and it took uh, an evolution in this country to undo it. And now it's going to take an evolution to preserve it because we do have powerful forces that would like to return us to a master race democracy. And that's that's unfortunate, but true. Yeah, my favorite quote, um, it's one I discovered in law school. It's the one I still stand by. It's by the great judge Learned Hand. He says, I think we place too too many hopes in laws and courts and constitutions. These are false hopes. Believe me, these are false hopes. Liberty lies in the hearts of men and women, and when it dies there, no law, no court, no constitution can save it. So ultimately, the Bill of Rights came from us, came from we the people, and it depends on we the people for its protection. I feel like we've been here a lot of times, Hannah. Yeah. Pretty much every episode. These documents, initially, didn't apply to everyone, and they may have flaws. But through sacrifice and through the actions of citizens, they become something greater. It's like this idea of no man being above the law or the words, we the people, or all men are created equal. The true power of these words is not given by the government. It has to be fought for by the people. We have to rise up to wield it. These episodes were written and produced by me, Hannah McCarthy, and you, Nick Capodice. Thanks, Nick Capodice. You're welcome. Our staff includes Christina Phillips, Jackie Fulton, and Rebecca Lavoie as our executive producer. Music in these episodes by Blue Dot Sessions. Still great after all these years, Blue Dot. Ikimashu Oi, Maiden, Scott Gratton, Ye Ye, Young Carts, Jingle Punks, Quintess Moreras, Josh Lippy, and the Overtimers, Jazar, Vibe Bouton, Sir Cubworth, Conrad Old Money, Bad Snacks, and the United States Marine Band. That is a lot of music. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio. No, I'm going to keep just doing the or- Orson Welles. <laughs> Findus. You only have to be slightly more than that. Findus Norway. I'm going to read now, okay?